Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Little Atoms magazine editor Padre Greedy talks to Harry Kunzru about his latest novel, White Tears. Harry Kunzru is the author of the novels The Impressionist, Transmission, My Revolutions and Gods Without Men, as well as the story collection Noise. His latest novel is White Tears. Welcome to the Latins, uh, Harry Kunzru. We're here to talk about white tears, and I'll let you maybe briefly before we before we go into the nitty gritty of it. Maybe briefly describe the what the book is about. It's about two young white record producers in New York who fake a 1920s blues record, mm-hmm. and um, you know they put this out. They have a production business that uh, is based on on giving a kind of retro analog sound to the bands that they work with, and they're very interested in the past rather than you know the future. And they put this out as a sort of calling card for their for their thing. They hope to fool some people and, and show how clever they are and how much they understand the aesthetic of this old music and uh, a collector gets in touch with them, an old man gets in touch with them to say well where did you find this record and they say well we made it up you know more fool you and he says, he says well no you didn't uh, I haven't heard this record since 1959 and at that point it opens up the possibility that instead of inventing something they've actually channeled something something from the past that wants to come back out into the present the narrator Seth he meets um, Carter who's um, obsessive um, music producer at university and in some ways it's it's a kind of familiar story of a slightly innocent narrator kind of a, a bride's headish or Gatsby-ing kind of innocent Carter thrown into this world of complexity and and above all wealth actually Carter and his family are incredibly wealthy people. Yeah, it is a story about inherited wealth and about about you know, generational inheritance as well and that much of the story turns on things that Carter's family, Carter's ancestors have done in the past and the origin of this fortune and uh, you know these two young guys are not unlike many of their 
peers, you know, they're New York hipsters and Carter is turning the family's capital into cultural capital. And, you know, like a lot of people in places like London and New York, they don't feel very connected to the, to say, the sources of the money that they're deploying in order to get this access to the culture. You know, certainly Carter feels not connected to the the South, which is the, the you know, his family's uh, roots are in the South. And mm-hmm. um, and his interest in black music and, and the blues is, is a sort of sign of fashionability rather than any kind of deeper engagement with the the history and the context out of which that music comes. But there is still a sense where Carter ironically you know, sees you know even though he has no kind of doesn't feel any connection is still in this dreadful hunt for authenticity in music and that and that rarity what does that say about him well I've, I've always written a great deal about authenticity mm. I mean it's something I've always turned over in my mind partly because of my own slightly kind of complicated position you know I often joke that I'm the most inauthentic person I know um, partly because I in my father comes from India my mum comes from the UK I'm not white enough I'm not brown enough mm-hmm. I've always been very aware of my identity as something that is constructed something that is to some extent performed and that you know you code switch a little bit and you and I am interested in the reverse of that perception where a lot of people feel in a very unproblematic way that they are who they are and that there is a, a sort of naturalness to their and an authenticity to their personal identity. And people are encouraged to seek authenticity in various ways in the culture. You know, and it's a, it's a throwaway word, you know, it's a, it's, it's a word for something that is good. But um, for a young rich guy like Carter it, you know it's my observation that often money makes the world rather thin and makes things rather kind of interchangeable um, people who haven't earned their own money sometimes find everything a bit disposable and that's a kind of troubling experience you know mm-hmm. if you if you can make anything happen then nothing is more important than anything else and and he's he's troubled by that and his interest in in black musical culture is very wrapped up with a search for a kind of rootedness and and thickness to experience that he doesn't feel he has and he has a really problematic notion of blackness as authenticity and Mm -hmm. uh, and especially you know you think about the blues and what the blues signifies in popular culture now and it's the go-to thing for the beer commercial where you know if you want to signify the real America or you want to say you know rootsiness you know mm-hmm. you have a blues guitar or a harmonica and yet there are endless layers of complexity to how this music actually came about and there's no you know the the image of the black bluesman as you know ultimate primitive authentic figure is a really really fake one is an inauthentic image mm-hmm. um and this is why it's very interesting to me to think about a young white wealthy guy who is interested in the most authentic music it is possible to be interested in and because it opens up this fascinating ambiguity uh, about realness and fakeness and and the construction of authenticity what i found interesting was there um the sense that authenticity comes with a, a narrowing almost always so so seth um the narrator starts off and he, he's very interested in techno which is which is a music of the future essentially um and He's gradually weaned off it almost by Carter, who's saying, no, this isn't right. And Carter starts off playing hip-hop in university gigs and kind of DJing, and his DJing gradually wheedles down to you know just 20s records. There's an interesting element. I remember reading an interview with Philoella Benjamin, of all people. Um, is in The Guardian a while back, and um, they had the stock question of, if you could live in any time, when would it be? And she said, um, I'm not nostalgic, because it was never a good time for black people, so I don't look back to the past. But the way that techno or hip-hop or futuristic black art, art movements are seen as 
inauthentic almost by Seth and and particularly and, and certainly by by Carter. How does that? Uh, why why does that happen? And what, what is there a fear of the the contemporary African American culture as opposed to the? Well, they've got they've got very different stories. Mm. Seth, the narrator, is a, has had some sort of breakdown in his past or some sort of experience of slipping backwards in time, and is sort of terrified of losing touch with the future. And until he meets Carter. He is very strictly a you know a forward-facing futuristic guy. Like he wants to listen to futuristic music, and he wants nothing to do with anything that will pull him backwards. And um, and he has a a sort of crush on his friend, and his friend is the one who's very interested in all sorts of retro things. And and reluctantly, Seth allows himself to be reintroduced to all these older forms of music. But you're very right to bring up that tradition of black futurism. I mean, there is a you know a, a sort of pretty well-known can. Of, of futuristic and future-orientated black music. You think about Sun Ra, who is at the centre of all these kind of conversations. You know, he, you know, he, his stage persona is as somebody who's from another planet and who's kind of come down to Earth. And you can you can read this as a as a sort of escapism and as a sort of uh, critique of the actual social conditions in which this guy has to mm. has to operate, you know, creating that sort of fantasy. And then later on, there are bands like Parliament, and then later you know, later still there are. There's the canon of Detroit techno people who are who have a kind of science fiction uh, forward-facing position. I mean, these days, people are beginning to kind of complicate that question, I think, a a little bit. I've noticed that black critics lately are a little bit sick of a sort of straightforward division between black futurism and sort of science fiction music and and Mm -hmm. something else i mean there's a yeah there's i wish i could remember the name of the piece there was quite i I think something called kind of the afrofuturist manifesto or the real afrofuturist manifesto Mm -hmm. that has been circulating a lot so uh, it's an artist's piece with kind of a 20 theses about how you should actually be talking about afrofuturism and maybe we can dig it out it's a it's an interesting thing to read in terms of this business about the future and, and and the past and black music Moving along the story, so Seth and Carter finish university, move to Brooklyn, Carter with his magical ephemeral money, buys a studio, buys a hell of a lot of analogue equipment and so on. I just want to read, actually, there's one, well, as you were saying earlier, there's one um, about the, the kind of gaseous air of wealth around Carter. There's a passage where Seth says, Money was Carter's invisible helper, a friendly ghost making things happen in the background. Cars arrived, restaurant tabs got picked up, and when it was time to change the scenery, money dissolved the city into a beach or a ski lodge. The thing was to never point out it was happening. So, <laughs> with this invisible air of money, they set up as, as as producers in Brooklyn, and they quickly start recording. At some, and it almost kind of, without insulting Mark Ronson, a kind of Mark Ronson-ish kind of recreation of, of sounds, and they have people flocking them, kind of girl groups, and British bands and they have a a white rapper who Carter having created this world feels he can decide is inauthentic at the same time and this is the point where things go slightly strained when Carter goes almost entirely off the rails really because there's no end point to his search for authenticity you know he's you know he dials up the intensity so you know he firstly digital equipment is no good then you know things 
post-war are no good and and then he's kind of backed himself into this into this sort of sonic corner where the only thing that is good enough for him to listen to are these 1920s and 30s blues records and he becomes a a collector of these records and since he has a lot of money he can afford to acquire them i mean they are they are an extremely expensive thing to decide to collect certainly these days you know the days of uh, digging things up for a few bucks are long gone in the blues 78s world and you know this this it's an unachievable quest mm-hmm. i think that's the thing i mean the, the hole he's trying to fill is never going to be filled by anything that he can buy in that way so through yeah, well, through actually, you know, the very digital tools that he's later showing, he he manages to create this. I'm, I'm trying not to give too much mm-hmm. as a plot away, yeah. giving it away to start, but he manages to create this record that doesn't exist or apparently doesn't exist, and manages to beat authenticity. Yeah, he's very yeah. proud of it. Yeah. I mean, what the, you know, essentially the ingredients they have are to a couple of field recording sets in the habit of wandering around New York City, just recording the ambient noise around mm-hmm. him and he picks up a singer singing a blues lyric and then for, on another file Carter finds a guitar that seems to mesh you know, strangely perfectly with the lyric and they throw those two things together and they throw a lot of crackle and hiss on top of it and that's their, that's their fake and so that's what they put out and they yeah, certainly for Carter it's a, it's a kind of prank and it's a sign that he really does own this stuff like mm-hmm. you know I can actually make this and you you feel like it's the real thing and that's you know to him that's a, a victory And but the book goes in a, a different direction this, this sort of supernatural direction which opens up you know a lot of ambiguities about this and have, how have they found these things how is this this mm-hmm. uh, record made itself known to them so Carter puts the, the record online onto a onto a, a collector's site and they're immediately contacted by character of Jump Jim mm-hmm. who wants to know where the record's from and claims to know about the record. Uh, tell us a little bit about about the character of Jump Jim. Well, he's from a generation of older blues collectors. I mean, one of the one of the things that is fascinating about diving into this part of the culture is is understanding how our contemporary taste for the blues came about. And um, you know, these are records that were made in the twenties and thirties. They were distributed in a very kind of haphazard, rather sort of throwaway way. They were not high culture. They weren't even very popular culture. They were, you know, they, they were marginal things even at the time. You know, the mainstream in the twenties and thirties was listening to sort of jazz bands mm-hmm. and uh, and things that were kind of coming out of New York and these um you know, one you know interesting fact that kind of illustrates how marginal all this stuff was is that one of the biggest labels is a label called Paramount that was actually run by a furniture company out of Wisconsin, and uh, their business model was selling gramophones to people, and they just wanted some records to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to go along with the gramophone, and they would they were absolutely pragmatic about what they recorded. You know, if they're trying to sell to people in you know West Virginia mountains, they're going to do fiddle tunes. You know, if they're trying to yeah. sell to people in Mississippi, they're going to they're going to record blues. So a lot of these guys had got onto record almost by chance Mm -hmm. and they were singing often in styles that were considered old-fashioned in the cities even at the time. Then it all disappears, taste moves on, uh, record production gets almost shut down by the Second World War and then after the Second World War in New York, a bunch of collectors who are jazz collectors, people who are kind of interested in the in the city of New Orleans, you know, uh, Jelly Roll Morton kind of sound, start to find these records and, uh, and a particularly intriguing character called James McCune, a very eccentric loner guy who did live in the Y in Williamsburg and, and uh, announced that this was 
the the most important kind of American music. And he he gathered a group of people around him, and they started to try, take an interest in trying to reconstruct what had actually been recorded and and who was who had been out there. And really, nothing was known at that point. It was an incredibly obscure. You know, obviously, there's no internet, there's no there's no books, there's no real. You know, even the labels hadn't kept proper records of what they'd made. And some of these guys started to go down south and go just go door to door knocking on doors in black neighborhoods asking whether there were records you know old records for sale and it's interesting to me that this was happening absolutely at the same time as the civil rights movement was on and there were people going door to door to register people to vote it's an intriguing thing to imagine these kind of white boys going around uh, around these different neighborhoods at the same time as other people are, are, are doing the same thing for different purposes. And the result of this was that a lot of music got rediscovered. This is when you know the culture discovers Robert Johnson and Charlie Patton and people who are considered extraordinarily important now. And then there was a sort of gateway a gateway drug really mm-hmm. which was uh, a guy called Harry Smith a Greenwich Village bohemian and collector called Harry Smith persuaded Moses Ash at Folkways Records to put out a compilation of his record collection which he called Harry Smith's Anthology of American Folk Music and Smith was a was an eccentric and something of an occultist and he wrote these extraordinary liner notes which made the case for this as a sort of you know cosmic lost key to the American spirit and these this is a three or four LP set started circulating and falls into the hands of people like Dave Van Ronk and, and Bob Dylan and Joan Byers. And these singers start to perform this music. It's not just blues, it's a lot of other kinds of, of 20s and 30s music as well. And so suddenly there's a there's a taste amongst left-leaning, white, college-educated northerners mm-hmm. for this music of the rural black south. And that's wrapped up with their political aspirations, it's wrapped up with ideas about civil rights, and people eventually dig up some of these old singers who you know, turn out to some of them to be still alive and available for doing college tours. So there is this sort of moment where people like Mississippi John Hurt and, and Sun House are old are old men, and they're, but they're making money by playing to these all-white audiences, or these largely white audiences. And there's a queasiness to that. There's a famous photograph of John Hurt, who is a... Uh, you know, it's, it's a very sweet-faced elderly man in you know, in a pair of overalls playing his guitar, and there's a sort of buzz-cut sort of young white man with his arm round him, looking sort of moonily at him, but also <laughs> in a kind of sort of I, know, I mean, it's, it's it's an odd expression on his face. Mm-hmm. You, you really there's a there's I mean, all the things about race and class and uh, are just you know vividly present in this blues revival moment, and so. Jump Jim, the collector, is from that generation, mm-hmm. and he narrates some of the stories of what it was like being a young guy discovering this music and a young collector mm-hmm. discovering this music and his relationship with an older, very acquisitive, quite James McCune-ish collector. Yeah. And so the t- in my interest is in the collecting culture as much as it is in the way the music was produced, because the, they are very eccentric, yeah. these blues collectors, and they have a lot of power in a certain way in that unlike record collectors who specialize in later stuff there are no masters available there's no Mm. you know if you have the cleanest copy of a tommy johnson record you're the man you people have to come to you to remaster it and put it out and there's a very limited number of people involved in this scene and by and large they're they're getting quite old and people know who has what (laughs) and there is scheming to get particular records and if something turns up if a new find turns up it kind of you know the news goes around and and people are trying desperately to secure a record that's become available Mm -hmm. before 
I mean, there's one particular guy at the moment who seems to be richer than all the others. There's a guy called John Tefteller, who I think is in Wisconsin. He's if he swoops in, he's got more cash and he will mm-hmm. he will get that record. So if you're trying to keep it out of his hands, you have to do shenanigans <laughs> and uh, and they do shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there, there's an exact instance I'm describing the book, and there were um, there are Chester. Bly, yes. And, and the, the, the immediate rush is, is, is to, to find it. So Chester's a fascinating character, actually, but there's an immediate rush after he dies to kind of track down what's happened to his records. And there is this, this yeah. an acquisitiveness. I mean, one of yeah. the more famous collectors of this music is Robert Crumb, the cartoonist, oh. Al Crumb. The, uh, and he, you know, he, he illustrates a lot of the portraits of old musicians. And he, there are a couple of self-portraits he's done of himself either imagining a record he wants to own or having just got hold of something that he wants to own and he's you know he's always quite grotesque in his in his portraits of himself but there's this you know this is this figure that's sweating and uh, desperate and kind of filled with you know anxious <laughs> energy and these guys are kind of like that you know I, I made a good friend a guy called Chris King who's a who's a serious collector and uh, and he you know he read he read the book and helped me check it through for factual errors and um, you know amusingly his you know his response was you know Hurricanes just telling it like it is that record collector <laughs> murderous <laughs> maniacs. <laughs> This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Natalie Haynes, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Dave Chester, who was kind of Jump Jim's guru, in a sense, or, or again, his gateway drug into the, the horror and the fascination of record collection, has some very specific rules, like the right-sized record collection mm. and the right period and the right place. But he takes Jump Jim on this acquisitive trip to the South, where he 
doesn't quite pretend he's a pastor, but doesn't doesn't nod. <laughs> yes, doesn't 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 suggest otherwise when people assume him to be. And what I think what's fascinating reading that passage is that I think now enthusiasts for any kind of of African American music would at least pretend to have some concern for African American culture, where there seemed very little in the post war collectors. There was no sense of curiosity about the world beyond the records. Well, I've I've read statements by some of these guys. You know, and some of them were political. Some of them actually had a great concern for for civil rights, or you know, or, or just more generally for the culture of the people that, that who made the music. But certainly for some of them, it was actually an escape from the present day. That there was this quality of uh, of these sort of ancient mystical voices singing to you out of the crackle, and so they had abstracted that from all the sort of conditions of its production. I mean, there, there are endless, very interesting stories about songs collectors and folklorists and and the, the very famous father and son John and Alan Lomax mm-hmm. you know John and Alan Lomax became sort of a researcher at the Library of Congress and was you know, collected a great deal of uh, field recordings and um, so John Lomax's father was a you know, white southern gent of the old school and he was interested in authenticity and he was interested in getting as far back in time as he could and he wanted to find the most authentic kind of black song and he said to himself well most blacks have had a corrupting contact with the white world uh, and so that you know or, and, and recorded music and popular music so we don't want that we want people who you know are as alienated from the mainstream white world as we put, I can possibly find because they're the ones who'll have the old folk songs and they'll know the slave songs and they'll know the things that I'm looking for the work uh, you know the, the hollers and the, and the work chants so he says to himself where are blacks most cut off from polite society prison and so he goes to Angola with recording equipment and he goes to Parchman Farm mm-hmm. and he goes to Sugarland and in Texas and he's gets access to these these incarcerated men and records them in the 1930s and you can hear on some of the recordings the way he sort of banters with them and it's very much the you know the boss mm-hmm. talking to his boys um, he, he understands how to talk to them and they understand how to talk to him everybody's playing that established game and there's absolutely no sense that he has a problem with the fact that he's you know he's in a prison and that these that, that these the reason he's there is is because he he wants them because they're imprisoned and and the material that he gets is extraordinary and then Lomax goes but John Lo- Alan Lomax goes back in the in the 50s again there's another series of recordings from Parchment Farm in the 50s and again the the material they gather is extraordinary and Alan Lomax was more concerned about the social condition of the people he was recording but mm-hmm. even he did a few things like he copyrighted a lot of stuff that he recorded uh, you know he said in order to protect it but you know he wasn't sharing that I think that that, that protection idea is fascinating because I think a lot of collectors would say that they are curating and they are you know and, the, and they the are only people you know this, this is not yeah. this is not a straightforward story of creative black people getting ripped off by evil yeah. white people because without the love and the work and the graft of these white collectors in the post-war period this music would have been lost and it is you know the corpus of, of, of recorded blues of the 20s and 30s I think can stand against almost any other American cultural product you know including mm-hmm. Hollywood cinema and you know and, 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 and jazz and it's very very important and they did real work but at the same time there's an ambiguity to that I mean what's mm. the boundary between love and, and ownership 
And that's what makes us interesting. You know, it's not a simple moral tale where everybody can kind of look at this and, and you know, tick off the, the naughty white appropriators <laughs> because there's something, there's something more complex happening. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not insanity. But I think you mentioned the, the um, Lomax going to prisons. And, of course, that's, that's something we learn quite early on about Carter, Wallace's family and where the money comes from. Mm-hmm. It is that it is out of this system of forced labor. I mean, another thing I, you know, I was writing this book over the period of um, 2014, 2015, when the movement for black lives really emerged as a, a major force. And, you know, it was my, I mean, part of this book is my way of trying to kind of give some context to why, you know, why this movement for civil rights, especially in terms of policing in the justice system, is important because there is a complete continuity between policing techniques that are being used now and sort Mm -hmm. of and the operations of local justice systems as now and things that were developed in slavery and immediately after slavery. I got very, I mean, I think the the slavery times are well known, you know, even, even Brits know about chattel slavery and they understand about the triangular trade and then you know the emancipation happens in 1865 and then by and large people understand i think in the states too people understand much less about what happened afterwards and mm-hmm. how the system how there was you know a brief moment where black people attempted to assert their uh, rights as voters and property owners and so on throughout the south and people were, became legislators and and property owners and and then there was this backlash the reconstruction turned into uh, you know, people were terrorized out of their property the voting restrictions were brought in and the system that we could you know we know as jim crow was instituted and that still to a great extent actually pertains mm-hmm. today i would argue but part of you know, after slavery they devised various ways to keep on exploiting black labor and a lot of that was to do with things like convict leasing which was a system whereby you would be picked up for minor offenses you know walking walking in the wrong part of town um, throwing dice drunkenness you know real or invented minor offenses taken to court you're given a fine are you able to pay your fine your ten dollar fine you're probably not because you're poor and uh and well you are then sentenced to work off your work in lieu and these guys are then transported to labor camps of one sort or another working on the levees clearing brush picking cotton and, and alabama working on and working in the mines and mm. uh, in many ways this was worse than slavery because the owner of a chattel slave has an incentive to keep his property in good condition so she feed him make sure that he's you know in a good condition to work if you're dealing with forced convict labor you just extract all the work you can and when they fall over dead you get another one and so the death rates in some of these camps were terrifying i mean the statistics are appalling and this system really only runs out of steam in the years just after the the first world war but it was kind of going on a bit much later and now you, you cut to the present day and you think about ferguson you know the flashpoint for the the round of protests that have happened over the last couple of years now the municipality folks and is a tiny little municipality and their sole source of finance more or less was through fines levied by the court system so the police were directed to go out and fine people for minor quality of life offences, the sort of things that we call broken window offences, yep. broken tail lights, jaywalking, that kind of thing. And people were given fines, and you know, and in many cases, your inability to pay the fine would would lead you further into into the justice system and sometimes to incarceration. But the main purpose of this was extraction of value from you know some of the poorest people around. And the background to the you know the reason that a riot would break out, that civil unrest would break out so 
immediately in a place like Ferguson is the constant grinding of money out of out of the population of Ferguson in order to keep this municipality working. And there are you know clear family resemblances there. I mean, I've driven around the south, and you see they're not in chains anymore, but I see I've seen guys in prison stripes working on the roads. Um, if you're a Louisiana state legislator, your coffee is served and uh, your lunch is served and the floors are being cleaned by incarcerated prisoners you know as you as you work on uh, on your uh, you know this year's prison budget you know you have a clear source of free labor that is taking uh, place you know, and then the private prison system has an obvious incentive to make sure as many people as are incarcerated as possible and in the last few years in the states there's been a move against the sort of heavy sentences of the war on drugs which led a lot of people into this privatized for-profit prison system but that and these companies have directed themselves very strongly towards Towards immigration detention. This is the boom area in American incarceration at the moment. It's it's immigration detention, and there's a lot of money to be made, and there is you know, there's a lot of lobbyists in there, and there is a, you know there is an incentive to put human bodies into this pipeline and extract profit from them. So I, you know, I see an absolute continuity between you know this historical mode of of uh, exploitation and and present day modes of exploitation. I mean, you know, Michelle Alexander famously wrote this book called The New Jim Crow about the about mass incarceration and the prison system, and that perspective is beginning to kind of take hold across you know a lot of places in America. But it's still, you know there's a very very hard fight to be to be had because there's a lot of people making money out of this. And also perhaps a lot of people, because it's about the stories Americans tell themselves and that we tell ourselves about America, that having to acknowledge this. this <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's this, one this, reason this, that yeah. I, think, I think a kind of ghost story is quite a good, yeah. uh, a good way. I mean, it's no accident that a lot of American horror stories and ghost stories take place on the old Indian burial ground. You mm-hmm. know, you think of The Shining. Yeah. Um, you know, and what, why should that be the case? Because that's the main thing we're repressing that might force its way back up to the genocide of Native Americans. And I think slavery is the other sort of primal sin of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the republic. And... Um, it is. It was very shocking to me when I moved there, and you know, I consider myself an informed person, and I, you know, know a certain amount of American history. But I didn't understand quite how hard a lot of white Americans find it to acknowledge what was done. You know, and, and, and anyone attempting to make you know to make them acknowledge that is accused of, of sort of wanting to make people feel guilty, kind of you know rubbing their noses in something that they had nothing to do with because you know they weren't alive at that time and. You know the the resistance to moving on is is much deeper than I understood. I don't know if you've been following the events around the removal of Confederate statues in mm-hmm. uh, in the South lately, but I mean, there's an extraordinary speech by the mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, who gave this speech about why he's ordered uh, three prominent confederate statues to be taken down and the resistance amongst people white people on the right to the monuments of the confederacy being removed is extraordinary you know you got you had all the kind of outright kiddies with their with their torchlight procession in i think it was charlottesville um and in new orleans there have been protests as well and landry points out that these these monuments were put up after the confederacy had lost in the civil war as part of this effort to remind a newly freed black populace of who was still in charge, that the mm-hmm. heroes were the heroes of that side, not the not the other side. 
Um, feel the same to move on from that point because it is, it is so crucial to um, to the whole book. And as you say, it's 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 a story. It's a haunting, and it's also a possession in some ways. Mm-hmm. Is is, is mm-hmm. core to the book. But I wanted to talk to return briefly to the idea of um, authenticity and the <clears throat> and sorry, the, the the collector ideal. Is it is, is that authenticity something that's increasingly hard to grasp in an era when? It's almost hard to justify owning a physical copy of anything. Mm. But having said that, it's, you know, we're, we're buying more hardcover books than ever mm. before. People are buying vinyl. People are beginning to fetishize the thing, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the, the material thing, the non-digitizable thing in, in, in a way that is, I think, directly related to the sort of liquefaction of, of everything mm-hmm. by, by the digital. You know, we have this, I mean, if, you know, in my lifetime, I'm now pretty, I'm 47, and so I was... I came up at a point where there was no internet and I remember the difficulty of getting hold of your subcultural signifiers, whether Mm -hmm. that was a piece of clothing or a record or whatever it was that you wanted to have in order to show that you were, you know, into a particular scene, Uh, you know, and you had to schlep around record stores or or whatever. And and, and, and a generation or two older than me, you know, if you wanted to, if you were a Brit and you wanted a pair of blue jeans, do you want to be a rock and roller? You had to go to a port and find an American sailor who, might you know might want to sell you a pair and i'm told that in the 50s in london if you saw another guy wearing jeans you went over and talked to him because that was you know you they were he was probably into the same stuff you mm. were you know whereas now we can kind of the distance between me first hearing about a band and me had me playing the music is you know mm. just as long as it takes me to type into the search box and i think that's devalued a certain sort of subculture you know now people are very nostalgic for the kind of tribal subcultures that used to be around in britain like even into the 80s when i was a kid and i was a teeny mod and and, and then people were casuals and stuff like that yeah. you know punks and new wave and all that and people don't have that tribal belonging in the same way anymore because you, you know everything can can be so easily shuffled and reshuffled and instead we have this figure of the hipster who is defined not so much by particular symbols but by a kind of speed of appropriation of symbols or almost mm. like speed of consumption of of symbols you know the hipster is somebody who you know has to can carry and it's a, it's a sort of you know endless you know if you stop treading you know you stop like a shark you know you stop swimming <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna die um mm. you know and it is about the new rather than a particular new thing so we're in a strange relationship to authenticity in that we crave it you know it's the it's the crack that the culture uh you know thrives on but the cycle of its commodification and and excretion is you know many times quicker than than it used to be you know i mean i remember a few years ago when file sharing was a new thing a friend of mine ran a file sharing meetup a sort of guerrilla you know swapping of pirate material and only about four people turned up and two of those turned out to be professional cool hunters <laughs> who were, you know and so there's the kind of tendrils yeah. of the you know of the yeah. of the culture machine are you know are sensitive and are in every in every crack so you know there's a you know i don't know where that leaves us i think i think i mean it leaves us with things like normcore like a kind of you know rejection of that whole wish for you know defining yourselves by symbols you know i'm just going to dress in chain store clothes and i'm not going to try and present any sort of front to you at all but we're you know we are in a i mean but we still seem to care about authenticity i mean Mm. and why you know we we still want it even as as it sort of recedes tantalizingly into the horizon i mean you could even think of it as you know as something that's a sort of uh, it's a motivating factor that we never quite 
achieve you know none of us achieves full authenticity and we quest after it and there's, there's, there's a curious sense right in the past few years where again we come back to the culture of the african-american south being the most the most you know if you go to anywhere in brooklyn or brooklyn to dalston and it's fried chicken and biscuits and gravy mm-hmm. everywhere you go it's it's it's, it's still seen at the, the acme of of the authentic and yeah and and that's directly the you know to do with these blues collectors in you know that that's their um you know that's how they plug this into the culture you know every time you see a beer advert and you know the old guy's tapping his foot on the porch and and blowing his harmonica and you know uh, you know that's the shorthand for authentic americana i mean the south is is a place of the new as well i mean one thing that that's a, that was interesting to me to discover in the course of researching this book was that the mississippi delta which I think, you know, in a sort of lazy way, one tends to think of as the sort of origin of this authenticity. In the early years of the 20th century, that was a new place. That place Mm -hmm. wasn't even cleared of swamp until after slavery had finished. Mm -hmm. And it was a big flat river bottom land that was an agribusiness place. And it was interesting because a lot of people could go and get work there. So it was mobile people. And uh, it was a kind of new class of of, of slightly... uh, you know, more itinerant workers were were coming into that place. I mean, eventually everybody mm-hmm. you know went north to Chicago, and and those kind of things happened. But you know, there's a Robert Johnson lyric where he says, you know. Is to bury my body by the highway side so my old evil spirit can get in the Greyhound bus and ride. And this this sort of wish for movement and the wish for the new was part of that thing of the blues. So you know when you when you point to these bluesmen and say, Oh, you're the kind of ultimate, you know, son of the soil. No, these guys, as far as they're concerned, they were the flash new guys who were kind of riding the rails and and uh, and, and and circulating. And, you know, the modern South is very different. I mean, the modern South is, you know, Jackson has a rapper called Big Crit and there's a, there's a you know, there's a big hip-hop tradition in, um, you know, across the South into Texas and, and places mm-hmm. like that. And um, But because of the, the politics of the place, there are pockets where people... I mean, there are, po- there are plenty of pockets of, in this Mississippi where people don't... Uh, they're not on the electricity grid and they don't have access to clean water. There are counties in Mississippi where people do not have running water, which is truly shocking in yeah. the in the context of you know the richest i mean there's never been wealth mm-hmm. like there is in america now i mean the the apogee of american wealth is you know is unprecedented in history and yet the distribution is, is so uneven you know we're back to the social relations of the gilded age you know before even the, the first world war i mean i think statistically all the kind of rich and poor gaps are now operating at about that about that level so it's as if the labor movement of the 20th century has been all the gains have been have been wiped out I think that'd be a terrifyingly grim but appropriate <laughs> yeah. place nice, to, nice to leave up, it. Nice, nice, uplifting <laughs> end. Um, Harry Kunzru's uh, White Tears is, is in shops now and very worth reading. Thank you, Harry. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, or even not, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.